Nobody has it all together, including the family sitting right in front of you this morning. You know, I think if you have young kids currently or in the past, you can resonate with this video because we all know what it's like to have an idealized view of how we think family dynamics should go, but then reality oftentimes falls far short of the ideal. We can laugh at what happens in this video, but the reality is family dynamics are oftentimes very difficult. I imagine even as we zoom out bigger than just, you know, little kids in church and Sunday mornings and stuff, yeah, as we talk about family dynamics, for many of you, even looking ahead to these holidays coming up with, over the next couple of months, fills you with a sense of anxiety. Because on one hand, you know, for some people when they look ahead, there's a lot of joy when they think about getting together with families, but for others, there is that anxiety. But the bottom line is that family makes a huge difference in our lives. Whether it's healthy, whether it's dysfunctional, whether it's somewhere in between, it makes a huge difference. And so this morning, we're going to talk about how we can have healthy, or at least healthier, relationships within our family. Now normally at this point in the message, I would invite you to turn your Bible to a specific passage. But this morning, I don't have one or even two specific passages for you to turn to. Um, because when I was thinking about all the vast array of, of types of family relationships and how do we pursue health in all these different types of family relationships, I couldn't find one or two or even three passages that talk um, you know, conclusively about how do we pursue health in that wide scope of family relationships that are possible. And so this morning what I encourage you to do is take notes and then you can look up those Bible passages later. I'll be covering them as well, but you can look them up again a little bit later. But the reality is that the family makes a big difference in our lives. And the concepts we've already covered in the series really have a lot of relevance to family dynamics. We've talked in the series about being motivated by love. We've talked about how to disagree well. That obviously has a lot of relevance to families. We've talked about the importance of going to the source when you have an issue with someone and about how to handle anger well and about forgiving others just as God forgives us. We've talked about living with humility and gentleness, gentleness and patience. All these concepts we've already covered apply very well in family settings. Yet families still are unique in many different ways, but one of the uniquenesses of families is how family dynamics are oftentimes so challenging. In many ways, family relationships may be the hardest of all. I was thinking this week about why are family relationships so difficult, and I thought of a few different reasons. One is because of the intensity of relationship within families, whether immediate family or even extended family, because in a family, you are together in relatively close proximity over a period of many, many years, typically. It's a long time frame that can cause annoyances and grudges to fester deeply over time. It causes grudges and jealousy and rivalry to grow very deep. And on top of this, because it's family, it makes it hard, if not impossible, to escape from a difficult relationship. You're kind of stuck there because they're your family. On top of that... Many times, family members experience the worst that each other have to offer. Because in a family, we drop our guard around family members, and we don't filter our words and actions in the same way we do around others. 
And to make matters even worse, within families, whether immediate or extended families, it's a web of deeply interconnected relationships where an issue that one person is having or an issue that two people are having with each other don't just impact the people directly involved, they impact everyone. Because families are webs of relationships. And when there are family difficulties, there's no magic solution. There really isn't. I mean, you look at the Bible, and the Bible is littered with examples of dysfunctional families. I mean, it's really easier to find dysfunctional families in the Bible than it is to find families that are operating in a really healthy way. And part of the challenge is that healthy relationships in a family or anywhere else require both sides making sincere, gracious efforts to build the relationship. It's a two-way street, but we can't control other people. I mean, we have a hard enough time controlling ourselves and our own actions and attitudes and words. It's impossible to control someone else. This is why, for instance, in Romans 12, 18, Paul says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. He says, as far as it depends on you, we can't control other people, but we do have some say over what's going on in our lives and how we handle our side of the relationship. But the bottom line, which makes family relationships very challenging, is that we can't control others. Whether it's our kids, or our spouse, or our siblings, or, or a cousin, we cannot control them. And even if we could, we'd probably still make a mess of things. And so I'm going to talk today about how do we handle family dynamics in a way that should lead to increasing health. But I think it's important to recognize at the outset that there are situations where no matter what we do, it's still going to be a strained situation. And then perhaps no matter what we do, there still may be a major separation, a major gap, or major animosity that can't be bridged by anything that we do. And so one of the things that should lead us to do is to pray. To pray that God will soften people's hearts in your family to love Jesus and love others. We've talked throughout the series that for healthy relationships to happen, we have to start with the heart. Start with what's going on on the inside. But the thing is, we can't change people's hearts. But we can look to God who can. So we pray and ask him to change people's hearts. I think, for instance, of Ezekiel 36, 26, where God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That's Ezekiel 36, 26 and it's God talking about the new covenant that he will establish once Jesus comes in the future. And at this point now, we look back on that as history, but it's talking about the new covenant. And so it's not exactly about interpersonal relationships in the family, but I think the topics are still good for prayer. Praying that God will remove hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh to love others and to love Jesus. Another good verse to pray is Psalm 51, verse 10. This says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That's Psalm 51, 10. And it points to the importance of praying for ourselves. Because healthy relationships start not just with other people's hearts, but with ours too. And so we can pray, God, give me a clean heart. Give me a right spirit in this. Lord, give me humility and wisdom on how to handle this situation. 
So we need to make sure that God is a significant part of how we're endeavoring to live out healthy relationships with those around us. Now, in addition to prayer and the other principles we talked about in the series, I want to talk about three more concepts that are valuable in all relationships, but especially in family relationships, that if we live these out, they can help us move toward healthier relationships in our family. And one is to invest time, energy, and care into the relationship. So it's the idea of investing in the relationship. And this is important for all types of relationships that are important to us. I mean, think about Jesus. When Jesus was seeking to make disciples, he didn't just depend on classes or on sermons to make disciples. I mean, he did give sermons, but that actually was not his main focus. His main focus was investing in relationships with a few key people who would carry on his ministry after he was gone. They were specifically his 12 disciples. We see in Mark chapter 3 that when Jesus was calling his 12 disciples to him, it says in Mark 3.13, he appointed 12 so that they might be with him and he might send them out. Now the passage goes on. It's a good passage to read in its broader context. But there's a phrase I just read that is easy for people to miss. It's the part that says that he called them to himself that they might be with him. The idea of being with him is the idea of relational investment, that he wants to spend time with them, share life with them, not just give them some classes or give them some curriculum or some sermons, but he wants to share life to them with them so he can invest in them relationally. And this is a key principle for us in any relationship that we value to invest deeply with our time and our energy and our care. So applying this to family relationships, let's talk first of all about marriage. If you are married, it is important to invest in your relationship with your spouse. And this seems like a no-brainer. But at the same time, we can get busy and we can get distracted. At times, we can get lazy or frustrated. And so we need the reminder to invest intentionally in our spouse. You know, it's so common to invest our time and energy and care into things like work and hobbies and exercising and friends and our kids and house projects and Netflix. And we invest so much time and energy into those things that then our spouse only gets our leftovers if there's anything left at all. And the question is, is that you? I mean, is that me and our relationships with spouses if we're married, that our spouse is at best just getting leftovers? Or are we investing with some of the best of our time, energy, and care? It's a convicting question that's important to consider because for healthy marital relationships, it requires both spouses investing intentionally in the relationship. Now, if you're wondering where to start with that, a good place to start would be the five love languages. The Five Love Languages is a book by Gary Chapman, but you don't actually even have to read the book. Just do a a search online for Five Love Languages because there are tons of resources out there. And the Five Love Languages has the premise that people give and receive love in different ways. And so it's important if we care about someone to invest in them in a way that helps fill their love tank. And there are five main love languages. Words of affirmation, quality time, acts of service, gifts, and physical touch. And again, different people give and receive love in these different ways. 
And if we want to invest in our spouse well, it's important to know what will fill our spouse's love tank. For instance, I know that with my wife, Shelly, if I give her a whole bunch of gifts and presents, that's probably not going to help her feel that loved. I mean, she may appreciate them. She may, you know, value the effort behind it. But that's not going to speak deeply to her heart in a a message of love. Because her love languages are more along the lines of quality time and words of affirmation, perhaps serving her in practical ways. And so if I want to invest in my relationship with her, it's important that I do those types of things intentionally. Now, if you have children, it's still important to invest in your marriage. And I know that when you have children in the home, whether young children or even teenagers, it's easy to get busy and distracted and stressed. But it's so important that parents continue to invest in their marriage because one of the best gifts that parents can give to their children is the parents having a healthy, stable marriage. Now let's move on and talk about investing in other parts of relationships as well, other family dynamics. Let's talk about children for a minute. If you have children, it's important to invest your time, energy, and care into them. In the Bible, there are high expectations for parents investing in their children. For instance, I think in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 7, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And these words that I command you today shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk in the road and when you, when you lie down and when you rise. Now, those first couple of verses I read in there were considered to be the most important verses for ancient Israelites about loving God, about there being one God. But what comes right after that section? It's a call to invest intentionally in the spiritual growth of children, to invest in them intentionally and relationally, just like Jesus invested in his disciples. We are to invest in our children, in their spiritual growth, but even on a broader scale, we're to invest in our children. I think, for instance, uh, of how much I appreciate the saying that children spell love, T-I-M-E, time. That, you know, children may say they want toys and video games, and they probably genuinely want those things. But as children will look back later as they grow older, one of the things they will most likely cherish the most as they look back is not the toys and the video games that they were given, but it's the time their parents invested in them. And the cost of not investing well in our children is very significant. I think, for instance, of a song called Cats in the Cradle. It's by Harry Chapin, but it's been redone through the years by people like Johnny Cash or Ugly Kid Joe. And the song follows the relationship between a father and a son from the son's birth all the way into adulthood. Let me read for us the first verse of the song. It says, My child arrived just the other day. He came to the world in the usual way, but there were planes to catch and bills to pay. He learned to walk while I was away. And he was talking before I knew it. And as he grew, he said, I'm going to be like you, Dad. You know I'm going to be like you. And as the song progresses and the child grows, the father continues to be very busy. Now let's fast forward to the end of the song. In the last verse, the dad says, I've long since retired. My son's moved away. I called him up just the other day. 
I said, I'd like to see you if you don't mind. He said, I'd love to, Dad, if I could find the time. You see, my new job's a hassle and the kids got the flu, but it's sure nice talking to you, Dad. It's been sure nice talking to you. And the dad goes on to say, and as I hung up the phone, it occurred to me, he'd grown up just like me. My boy was just like me. This is a song that to me is both inspiring and kind of haunting and kind of convicting because the way that we invest in our children makes a difference in how they grow up. And you see, the boy did grow up to be like his dad. The dad had no time to invest in the son. And so the son, as he grows up, doesn't have time to invest in the relationship with his father. And you can imagine a likelihood of, of that cycle perpetuating in the future generations of being too vi- busy to invest well in the children. Now, it's so important for parents to invest intentionally and regularly in their children. Now, as children grow up into adults, and as we consider more extended family, the dynamics change some, but the principle still holds that if we want a healthy relationship, we need to invest on a regular basis, so whether it's through phone calls or getting together or things like that. Now, I have a plant in my office, and it was sent to me by my parents on my very first day working here at Freedens. It was many years ago. And for me, this plant is kind of special because it reminds me of the love and care my parents invested in me down through the years. But one of the things about a plant is you have to invest in the plant regularly to keep it alive. One of the ways you have to invest in it is by watering the plant. Because if you don't water the plant regularly, the plant is going to die. And I will tell you, this plant has been very near death many, many times through the years. But somehow each time, even though I come in and the the leaves are all wilted and stuff, I I rescue it enough that it comes back to life enough. Uh, But, you know, a, a plant, and watering a plant is like a relationship where both take regular, consistent investment into them or else they're going to wither and die. So it's important if we have relationships that we want to maintain, that we want to prioritize and take care of, we must invest in them regularly. Now a second concept I want to point to today for healthy relationships is to treat our family members with love and respect. Love and respect. And I borrow that phrase from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 33, where Paul is talking about marriage. He says to husbands, let each one of you love his wife, wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, Paul's applying love and respect in specific directions here, but at the same time, I think it's important to understand that it's not like love is reserved for the wife and respect is reserved only for the husband. Because really both husbands and wives and everyone else needs both love and respect. Now we've talked about love a number of times in the recent weeks in this series. So I want to focus for a few minutes on the topic of respect. Respect. Respect is is important for healthy relationships. Now respect does not mean that we agree with everything that someone else says or does or believes. But respect does mean that we treat people with dignity, the way that we would want them to treat us. We show respect, for instance, by listening and by valuing their opinion. We show respect by supporting people in their weaknesses, not weaponizing their weaknesses against them. Another way we can show respect is by taking an interest in what interests 
them. I think my wife, for instance, deserves a lot of credit for taking interest in the things that interest me because if you know me very well, you know that when I get excited about something, I talk about it a lot. I mean, sometimes incessantly, I just go on and on and on about it. And my wife, down through the years, has heard me talk a ton about bicycles and about cars and about sports and about the musical Hamilton and about various books I'm reading about all kinds of different subjects. And I know that a lot of these things I talk incessantly with her about are things that don't naturally make her excited, even though I'm excited to talk about them. But to her credit, she shows an interest. She listens. She asks questions. She seeks to understand. I mean, she frequently seems genuinely interested in in the things that interest me. And that means a whole lot to me. It's a sign, among other things, of respect and valuing the other person. Showing an interest in what interests others is a great way to show respect of them. We also can show respect by giving people freedom to live their lives, of making their own decisions, recognizing that we can't control other people, nor should we try. Now, when you think about families, there are frequently cycles of unhealth that just kind of perpetuate themselves in terms of of bickering or in terms of ignoring one another or belittling one another or rudeness toward one another or gossiping about one another. There are these cycles that just continue on that just go back and forth and back and forth. And by choosing to show respect in that type of relationship where there may be the cycle of unhealth, by choosing to interject respect, at least from one side, it can help to break that cycle of unhealth. And if there's that cycle going on, someone, if you want it to be healthy, someone needs to choose to break it. And one of the ways to break that cycle is by showing respect to the other person. And that may not guarantee that the issue is automatically fixed. It probably won't get fixed quickly. But it can at least help the relationship progress toward increasing health and along the way help our heart, at the very least, to grow healthier in that situation. Now, one of the other types of, of relationships that can be challenging is in-law relationships. Because when, when there's a marriage that occurs, relationships and those dynamics, they change. One of the keys for healthy relationships with, between in-laws is respecting one another, treating each other with respect. Now, I think about children living at home as well, whether they're young children or teenagers, how, how the Bible applies the topic of respect from ch- young children or teenagers to their parents is in the form of obedience. The obedience is how younger children can re- show respect to their parents. We see this, for instance, in the Ten Commandments, where it specifically says, children, obey your father and mother. Obedience for children still living in the home is a, a, an important form of respect. And even though that parent-child relationship is not equal in terms of authority between parents and younger children, even still parents should also show respect toward their children, even young children. I think, for instance, of Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul quotes from the Ten Commandments about how children, you should obey your parents. And then he goes on after that in Ephesians 6, 4, to say, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, do not exasperate them. So this is a reference to treating children with respect, with dignity, recognizing that even young children are made 
in the image of God and should be respected. Now, when children reach adulthood, when you have adult children relating to their older adult parents, the dynamics change some again. No longer are adult children called biblically to obey their parents, but there should still be a very high level of respect that adult children have and show toward their parents as well. And when you have love and respect in any relationship, including a family, it can help to create a beautiful, healthy relationship. Now, there's one other principle I want to point out for us. It's a principle about communication and trust. That we need to prioritize and protect communication and trust within our family. Now, this applies definitely in marriages, but it applies well in other relationships too. Communication and trust. And I would say that probably every couple for whom I've done premarital counseling in the last decade has heard me talk about the importance of communication and trust because they are vital in a healthy relationship. And I talk with couples about how if you have healthy communication and healthy trust, you can weather pretty much any storm that comes your way. But as soon as communication or trust starts to break down, the relationship is going to be headed in an unhealthy or even dangerous direction quite quickly. And there's frequently a sequence where communication begins to break down first, followed by trust. And once trust breaks down a relationship, it is very unhealthy and dangerous for the relationship. And it takes a while, perhaps, to rebuild the trust in that relationship if, if, if the people involved want to try Healthy communication and trust are vital, so it's important to prioritize and to protect the communication and the trust in a relationship, whether it's a a spousal relationship or any other relationship in family or otherwise. Communication and trust. The reality is that many people are not very good at communicating. Now, communication has two sides. It has the speaking side and the listening side. Many people struggle with both. I mean, the speaking side seems straightforward, but in order for healthy communication to take place, the person on the speaking side needs to share their opinion openly and honestly. And this is where many people struggle. One of the things we talk about in premarital counseling is is the importance of both sides being assertive with their opinion. And this can seem counterintuitive because some people like to hold their opinion inside. But for healthy communication to take place, Both sides need to be open about sharing what's going through their mind because if they hold it inside, you're not going to be communicating very well and openly and the relationship could struggle because of that. So some of you may need to share with your significant others more openly and honestly in order to have a healthier relationship. Now the listening side is a big struggle as well frequently because frequently if we listen at all, we listen with the intent not to understand so much as to prepare what we are going to say in response. I think that's one of the reasons why James says in James 1.19, to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. To be quick to listen for the sake of understanding where the other person is coming from. That is key and essential for healthy relationships. If you can keep communication and trust going strong, it's going to pave the way for a healthy, ongoing relationship. So those are three, three principles about investing and about uh, love and respect and about communication and trust that are very important for healthy relationships, including in a family. 
But again, family dynamics are oftentimes very complex and very challenging. When family relationships are healthy, it can be very life-giving, filling us with joy and stability and confidence in our lives. On the other hand, when family relationships struggle, it can just drain us. And so in closing, I want to point us back to the gospel. The gospel can give us a new sense of identity, a new meaning in life that then impacts the relationships that we have with people around us. I want to read for us a few gospel truths, just three of them actually, that we covered earlier in this series that have a tremendous impact on how we relate to those around us. So here's what the gospel can do in our lives, in our relationships. That through the gospel, if I know that I have worth because of God's choice of fully loving me, that I don't have to manufacture a reason to be loved, I can instead love others and offer them affirmation and attention. If I know I'm rich in God already and everything that matters, that I don't have to prove my worth or my wealth in money, status, looks, career, competence, notoriety, and talent. And this is important because in families, one of the things that causes jealousy and rivalry is people comparing themselves with each other and competing with each other on who's doing better in this category or that category. But the gospel says we don't need to measure ourselves or others in that way. I can instead use my time to pay attention to others' needs. If I know God isn't judging me by the standard of who is the best leader or who has the most authority, then I don't have to worry about positioning myself. And this, again, is relevant to families because frequently in families there's conflict because different family members are trying to position themselves above the others, getting the upper hand, having the bigger say in things. But if we know that God accepts us, not based on the standard of who's the best leader or who has the most authority, we can instead submit to others' strengths and protect their weaknesses. And the gospel empowers us to be ambassadors of reconciliation. We have God as our model. He, he, he has shown us such reconciliation through Jesus sacrificially and generously. And the gospel empowers us to be ambassadors of reconciliation who can be catalysts in our relationships, including in our family, beginning to sow seeds of increasing health and sow seeds of love and respect and healthier communication and handling conflict in healthy ways and disagreeing well. It doesn't mean that all of our family dynamics are automatically going to be solved because family situations are challenging. But God still wants to work through us to be catalysts, to be ambassadors of reconciliation in our family. And so again, I want to point us back to praying. Because we can't do this on our own. But praying that God will equip us and empower us and guide us and give us a clean heart to be that catalyst for healthy relationships in our family. May we pray along with Psalm 19.14 that, that the meditations of our heart and the words of our mouth may be pleasing to God. And in the process, may it build others up and be a catalyst for increasingly healthy relationships, ultimately for the glory of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have modeled how to pursue healthy relationships with us. That through Jesus, you pursued us, you sacrificed on our behalf, you were generous, you were gracious, you were merciful. And Lord, thank you that we can call you Father because of what you have done through Jesus. I pray that each one of us will come to you by faith, trusting you and experience a reconciled relationship with you. 
And that in the process that we will enjoy the relationships we can have with those around us, especially with brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, please guide us and give us wisdom and courage and grace and humility as we navigate the complexities of relationships, especially family relationships. I know that there are people here today who have deep struggles in their family, deep heartache, perhaps estrangement that they wish was improved or just bitterness that continues to rear its head. Lord, I pray that you will give grace in these situations, give encouragement, help us to know that you're never present help in times of trouble. And Lord, please, please give us the wisdom and courage to handle these ways in a way that ultimately honors you and leads to increasing health. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us, that you're a model of a great father and a great friend. We pray these things in your name. Amen.